Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hey, just want to warn you, this episode is like the tiniest, smidgiest bit cursy, so consider this your warning. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. And Nerdette is a show where we talk to your favorite or soon-to-be favorite people. And this week's guest is legit one of my favorite people. Her name is Linda Holmes. She is NPR's pop culture correspondent. She hosts a little podcast you may have heard of called Pop Culture Happy Hour. And... Lucky for everyone on this green earth, Linda has just written her first book. It is called Evie Drake Starts Over, and it is great. It's about a woman who, just as she decides she's about to finally leave her husband, finds out that he's dead, and a major league baseball pitcher who suddenly loses the ability to throw. We're going to talk to her about the book and about what it's like to write your first book when you're, like, pushing 50. So if you listening right now are one of those people who's always thought about writing a book, this episode is totally for you. Linda, welcome back to Nerdette. Thank you so much. So this is one of those books, like I finished it in the afternoon and then I took a really long nap and then like I pulled it back off of my shelf and put it on my bed before I was about to go to sleep, like not realizing that I had already finished it. And then I had to have this moment where I was like, oh, no. This book is over. I'm so sad. There's no more of it for me to enjoy. Oh, that's wonderful. It's also probably partly because I laced it with drugs. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> yes, I was high the whole time. I should Did not do it. that. Did not do that. <laughs> but I mean, I don't know. I feel like that's such a testament to how great this book was. You know, I mean, I'm sure you're well aware of that feeling when you finish a great thing and then you just have to take a minute to like mourn the fact that it's actually over and now you have to find a new thing. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, in my own personal life, I have so much that I'm always trying to consume that there's also always that feeling of like, that was great. Now I have time to start something else. Moving on. (laughs) Exactly. Just because the the fire hose of content, as we always say, Uh is so uh, extraordinary. But you know how that is. And for your teacup brain, I totally understand. Uh (laughs) So, yeah, partly I'm curious. I mean, you're you're 48, right? Mm -hmm. And you have made like a really excellent, amazing career for yourself talking about pop culture Mm -hmm. in this public radio space and beyond. Did you always have a book in you? Um, I always wanted to have a book in me. Uh Um, I think I always, I mean, I wrote stories when I was a little, little kid. I wrote short stories when I was, you know, as young as elementary school. I would start 10 pages of maybe I'll make this into a novel starting when I was probably in high school or college. Uh Um, And I would chip away at those things. And I would have, I would say there were probably a total of roughly 10 that I ultimately wrote at least, let's say, 20 pages of, Uh 10 to 20. Um, But I did not take it particularly seriously, the idea that I was going to to actually complete a novel. And I I really wasn't sure past a certain point that I could because I sort of thought, well, 
I've been wanting to do this for a long time. What are the odds that I'm suddenly at at in my mid 40s going to discover the ability to do something I haven't been able to do for the last, you know, 45 years? So, yeah. Is it about discovering the ability to do it or is it is it about just being like, fuck it, I'm going to do it? It's the second one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the fuck it one. It's the it's <laughs> it's I think it's about being willing to admit that it's something that you really want to do. Because to me, I remember when I was first working on it somewhat seriously. So this is probably in 2016. Uh I remember I would say, you know, I've been working on this novel project that I have put down for a long time. And my friend Glenn Weldon, who's on Pop Culture Happy Hour with me, said to me at some point, um, just say novel. Just say I'm writing a novel. Don't say novel project. Just say I'm writing a novel. Own it. Um, and so I did. And then on our uh, 2017 New Year's resolutions podcast, mm-hmm. I said, I'm going to finish it. And so then it was a public thing. <laughs> um, and it's not a thing of like, I don't really believe in kind of, you know, make yourself accountable to the public. It wasn't that. It uh-huh. was more acknowledging to myself. Yes, this is something I really want to do and this want to finish. And I I still felt like, you know, I have no idea if anyone will care about it or want to publish it or whatever, but I would like to finish it. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, I probably had maybe like a, a fifth to a third of it. And I said, I know I would like to finish it. That is something I would I would just like for myself to do. Um, so I think mostly it was a matter of uh, admitting I wanted to do it, admitting, admitting that I aspired to do it, even though I had no idea whether I could do it. So what then is your advice? I mean, I don't know. I think about even for me, like, I think I'm at the point where I would like to have a book in me, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, yeah, I totally like in fifth grade, a friend and I wrote this elaborate story about this girl who finds an egg and it turns out to be a dragon egg and she becomes the Khaleesi. Just kidding. It wasn't Game of Thrones. But, you know, like. No, but that's, I mean, you got a winner right there. That sounds like, that sounds like, that's not a book. That's three books. That's like three books, a movie series. series. Exactly. Yes. But I mean, I think there are so many people out there for whom writing is that thing that they wish they did more and Mm -hmm. are scared to admit that they would love to be that person and who probably are, you know, have figured out the other career that could or could not be creative. Sure. What do you tell people? I mean, I'm sure you're going to get this question a zillion times as you go on (laughs) book tour, right? Is like, I want to, you know, you did it, right? Like you wrote your first novel in your mid-40s. Mm-hmm. How do we do that? Well, I think the, the interesting thing about it is I always want to give this advice to people, and it's never the advice they exactly want to hear. <laughs> of course. But I mean, that is the best advice usually, right? <laughs> the advice that I can give from experience is if something kind of n- needles at you, if something kind of keeps poking at you to do it, then just keep doing it. And then at some point, you may find that a story has enough kind of um, hooks in you that you feel like you have to keep going with it. I would also encourage people, I think especially if it's the first thing, the first novel that you've written, there are people who feel like I should know everything that's going to happen in the entire book. Um, I should know everywhere that this is going to go. Um from the minute I sit down to write it, because otherwise what's going to happen, I'm just going to run out of story in the middle. Uh-huh. 
It's extremely common for people to feel like they're running out of story at approximately 30,000 words, which is about the end of the first act mm-hmm. of a book. Mm-hmm. Um, extremely common. And it's because your idea for the book is often a first act of a book. Don't be afraid to write the first act of the book and then see how you feel. Because that's what I did. I only really knew what about the first third was. Well, and you had... Is this right that really the first time you took a big stab at it was for National Novel Writing Month? Yes. Mm -hmm. In 2012, right? 2012, yep, absolutely. I had little pieces of it that were kind of spread all over the place because, like I said, it was different ideas and it was different pieces. But I started to try to put them together November. So so National Novel Writing Month is November. Uh, This was 2012. Spent, like, I want to say five or six days doing what I was supposed to do every day, meeting my Uh quota. And then there was a flood in my apartment. Oh, that'll do it. So then it was like, well, not doing it this month Uh because I was displaced and all this other stuff. So then it got put down. And over the next, but I had written just enough of it that over the next like three years, I would every few months pick it up and write a little bit. And I had one or two friends who were super enthusiastic and saying like, I think this would be great. I think you should keep writing it. And so I would I would let them kind of egg me on a little bit. And I just I picked away at it. And I think you shouldn't be afraid to keep picking away at it because of the fact this is what I think my story does actually prove. The fact that you haven't gotten something done by a certain point in your life does not mean you're not going to. Yes. Yeah, I I was just going to say, I feel like there's something in there about being able to forgive yourself too, right? Because you totally could have like written for those five or six days, have your apartment flood and just be like, well, obviously that wasn't meant to be. Exactly. This is not for me. I'm just going to forget it and move on now. Exactly. You know? And I, I think it has to do with identity too, right? It has to do with the fact that your identity is not set in stone when you are any particular age, right. the way that that often people feel like it's supposed to be. And I always try to find a way not to sound like an old person when I say this to people. But when I talk to people who are like in their 20s and they're genuinely upset about the fact that they feel like I don't really know what my direction is. Mm -hmm. And I'm 27. I'm 28. I mean, it's incredibly privileged to be able to say you still have a ton of time, right? Because you don't have a ton of time to pay your rent and do things like that. But... You have a ton of time for your identity, particularly as a creative person, Mm -hmm. to develop. And you have a long time for your particular set of talents to mature. And that I do feel really, really strongly about. There is time for who you are to change at literally any phase of your life. (laughs) After the break... We dive into Evie Drake. It rhymes, which is kind of fun. You're listening to Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. 
Okay, so Linda, let's talk about some of my favorite things about Evie Drake Starts Over. Even within the first chapter, I feel like this isn't spoilers because it's literally the first chapter. Right. We have Evie. She's like in the car, in the driveway. She's got cash in her glove box. She is like ready to leave her husband. She's done. She's over it. And it's as she's about to leave that she gets a call from the hospital that he's been in a horrible car accident. Mm-hmm. And he dies. Yes, he does. And that's like literally the first two pages of this book. Uh-huh. Which already I was like, oh, wow, we're doing this. Yes. So our other main character is this baseball player. Yes. Who is a pitcher for the Yankees and is really good until he's not good anymore. Right. And what's it called? The Yips? It's called The Yips, and it's extremely real. Happens to real baseball players, uh, you know, relatively commonly at some level. And there are a certain number of extremely famous cases that have ended people's careers, um, which is kind of what happens to him. But, yeah, it's a real it's a real thing. It's very upsetting. You just one day you just kind of can't pitch anymore. And. They have studied it a lot. It can happen to people other than pitchers, like guys who play second base who can't throw to first anymore. It's a really strange phenomenon. It can happen in golf and basketball and other sports. But, um, yeah, I've I've read quite a bit about it in baseball. It's so funny because I'm one of those people who, like, gives no shits about sports. Right. I'm literally going to a White Sox game later tonight, and I'm bringing my knitting, and I, like, (laughs) prepared an extra skein of yarn just to make sure that I wouldn't run out of knitting to do at the baseball game, because otherwise... What would I do at the baseball game? Uh, Yeah, watch baseball. (laughs) I guess. Yeah, I get it. I get it. You know, and so I don't know. It's always such a delight to me to find stories that end up being about sports that I actually really love and can totally relate to and find fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I think the yips, like it has so many different layers that I'm just like, oh, my God, this is great. Right. And I also think for me as a writer, you know, what fascinated me about it was you do have that fear as anybody who does anything where you feel like you re- you rely a little bit upon the idea of inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, you do feel like, well, what would I do if I just woke up one day and I never had another idea? <laughs> like, it's a, it is a weird thing to think about. And I think I've always been really, um, really sympathetic to athletes who, who wind up in this situation, partly because it's usually so public, um, particularly yeah. if they are um, prominent major league athletes. It's it's extremely public. People tend to be merciless about it because they don't understand why it's happening and they don't understand why you can't just pull yourself together. Um, so it can be a, a very brutal experience for for athletes. So we've talked about Evie, the young widow. We've talked about Dean, who has the yips. Yes. These were originally supposed to be two different books, right? Yeah, yeah. I had I had an idea in my head that I wanted to write about sort of complicated grief, the idea of, of being... At a funeral, for example, for somebody who had treated you poorly. And and that story kind of grew out of that. And then I was also thinking about the yips and about um, athletes who struggle and um, these ideas about how driven they are and how much time they spend uh, being really devoted to this one thing. And eventually I just realized that they were both – that those stories both touched on a certain kind of um, – feeling of brokenness um, mm-hmm. that I felt like if you put those people in in some kind of proximity to each other, that their stories would kind of speak to each other a little bit. Absolutely. And I mean, I think it's a love story for sure. But I, I don't know. I feel like one of the biggest things I got out of this book was the importance of therapy. I really felt like when I had set this woman up as a character who had some pretty significant stuff she needed to deal with, right? Um, 
I didn't want to imply that because she meets this guy and he says certain things to her that that resonate with her, um, that that solves problems that I actually think usually require some kind of assistance like from work. a professional. <laughs> yeah. And some work that you have to do often not with someone that you're, um, you know, personally involved with. So, yeah, it was important. To, it was an important thing to me to include. Um, and it was important to me to include enough of it that it didn't just feel like an afterthought. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think about even the first scene where she does go see a therapist where she originally thinks like, I'm going to go see a therapist on behalf of my friend Dean. Right. Because maybe this therapist can help me figure out how to help him. Right. And and the therapist is like, oh, honey, no, that's right. not how this works. Right. And I think for me, that was related to the fact that I feel like one of the things that sometimes happens with, with therapy is that... E- you can even go, and if you're not really ready to be there and you're not really ready to talk about the things that you need to talk about, it can be ineffective for mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. So when she first goes, she, there's some part of her that, like, she sort of wants to do this and she sort of wants to go talk to a therapist, but she's still very much in that in that fixing and helping mode mm-hmm. um, that I think is really common, especially but not exclusively with women. Um, that idea of like, I'm going to fix my problems by fixing somebody else's problems in this case by, you know, helping this guy be able to pitch again, Mm -hmm. because I want to help and do something effective, and then I'll feel better. Well, I think too, it also illuminates the very important distinction that a lot of us are still figuring out, I think, between being someone's friend and being their therapist. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. That's pretty explicit in the conversation she has with the therapist is like, look, you can be someone's friend. It's really important. People really need friends. But therapy is different. I think another thing that really stuck out to me about Evie, this character in this book, is that you don't spend a lot of time letting her hate her body. No. You know? No. Which, like... I don't know. I wish I weren't surprised by that. I wish that didn't stand out to me. But Mm -hmm. I mean, there's this passage where she's talking about she like had looked up all of Dean's ex-girlfriends, which many of which are like these very famous, very beautiful, like literal rock stars and movie stars and stuff. And right after that, she like goes in the bathroom and looks at herself in the mirror and like pokes at her belly a little and kind of like looks at her face and thinks about her hair. And there, it's like two paragraphs And they're beautiful. And there's no self-hatred in them. It's more that she's, like, observing herself. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. I really wanted that sequence to be about her kind of rediscovering her physical self, Uh if that makes sense. Yeah. She's kind of, in that moment, she's, you know, she knows him. She's interested in him. There's something going on between them, but she's not exactly sure what the future of it is. And she's been kind of shut down, I think, physically and sexually and all that. And so I think that sequence is not really about her evaluating herself physically. I think it's more about, it's definitely about her nervousness, right? Because he's dated these people who are incredibly glamorous. Right. But she's just reminding herself, like, this is my physical self and and this is my physical body and this is my physical being. And I care about it and I'm allowed to care about it and I'm allowed to work on kind of presenting it in a way that I feel great about. And she's going through all those kind of tense things about, do I want to seem like I'm trying? Do I want to seem like I'm not trying? (laughs) So there is some stuff that's kind of about 
um, how do you want to present. But I, I really wanted to leave her specific appearance pretty pretty nonspecific. Yeah, like we don't know the shape of this woman's body. Yeah, I wanted it to be kind of um, – I really didn't want to get into too much of her specific – um, you know, was she conventionally beautiful? Was she not conventionally yeah, beautiful? Yeah, I loved that. I found um, it so refreshing. Because she, what was important to me was how does she feel about it? Yeah. Um, how does she feel about how she looks? How does she feel about her body and her face and her appearance? And how does he feel about it? Yes, right? I think that's totally. valid. Well, um, and I also love that, like, he is hot. Yes. Like, he's got a great bod. <laughs> right. And I, I did kind of like, I, I think because she wasn't in a marriage that kind of turned her on very much, mm-hmm. it was interesting to me for her to be in a situation where, like, oh, yeah, this is somebody who kind of, like, revs me up in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's I sort of liked the fact that with him it's a little bit more specific and with her it's a little bit more kind of left to your own interpretation, I guess. Me too. I was thrilled by it. I thought I was it was so glad. actually really special. I'm so glad. <laughs> I look forward to reading more books like it in the future. <laughs> Absolutely. I hope to write more like it in the future. Linda Holmes, thank you so much for talking with me. This was such a pleasure, and I am so excited about this book and all of your other ones that you're going to write and we're going to devour. Oh, thank you so much. That's so nice of you. Oh my God, I'm just so excited for everyone I know to read this book because it is so truly excellent. And I can't wait for Linda to just like quit her jobs and write a million other books because obviously that is what is most important in this situation. Is that aggressive? Is that too much? Do you think that's too aggressive? I'm sorry, Linda. Of course, I love for you to keep... (laughs) Anyway... Because Linda is a pop culture expert, I couldn't let her go without asking her about three things that we should watch this summer that are awesome. I'm going to put a list of those things in our newsletter. You can sign up for it on Facebook. Just search for Nerdette and then click on the blue sign up button. The show is produced by me, Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull, who loves the yips. Our co-creator is Trisha Bobita, who loves the Yankees. And our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak, who recently placed 15th in ribs in the Kansas City Barbecue Society. Red, White, and BBQ Day. Good job, Brendan. Nerdette is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. We have literally hundreds of other episodes I bet you would like. You should check out our interview with Madeline Miller. She wrote a book called Circe, which is also excellent. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you get your pods. Many thanks to the Daniela for the lovely review on Apple Podcasts. You make my nerd heart smile too, so there. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.